I'd like to ask uh, to have you please turn with me to our text for this morning, Psalm 130. Psalm 130. And we're continuing our sermon series looking at the Psalms of Ascent. As we've said throughout this series, these were the songs that the Jewish people would have sung as they ascended up towards Mount Zion, made their way towards the temple in Jerusalem to worship there. And in a similar way, we are ascending, progressing uh, towards our own celebration uh, in just a couple of weeks at Christmas. And so we're using these psalms to reflect on that throughout this season of Advent as well. So Psalm 130, and this is what the psalmist writes, both to God's people back then as well as to us as God's people today. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, over the years, some of the most dedicated and committed Christians I've known are those who at one point or another have hit what we, what we call rock bottom. Uh, for instance, back when we lived in Milwaukee, the church uh, that I served had an ongoing partnership with the Milwaukee Rescue Mission. Um, and as a result, I got to know a number of the men who went through the rehabilitation programs there for drugs and alcohol abuse. And that's something that they would often talk about, that it took hitting rock bottom at some point or another for them to realize that they needed to turn around their lives. I remember talking with one guy in particular about that. He told me that he'd actually had a number of rock bottom experiences, or at least so he thought. Uh, One was a drug overdose, another was getting robbed at gunpoint, Uh, still another was getting kicked out of a friend's apartment and having to live homeless on the street. And after each of those experiences, he told himself that that was it, that he was going to change, he was going to turn his life around, things were going to look different. And he would for a while. He'd get rid of his drugs, he'd check himself into a rehab facility and swear that this time he would change his life. Unfortunately, each time he fell into bad habits again afterwards. The final one, though, was getting in a serious car accident. Uh, He'd been driving while under the influence of drugs when he crashed his car into the median of a highway. Uh, It was the middle of the night, and so there wasn't much traffic around, which fortunately meant that he didn't hit or injure anyone else, but it also meant that no one knew that the accident had happened for a little bit. And so it took a while for someone to call emergency services. Eventually, somebody did pass by. They called 911. And by the time the paramedics got on the scene, he was in such bad shape that they medevaced him to a hospital in Milwaukee where he was put into a coma. When he came out of that coma a few days later, he knew that this time was going to be different. After he was discharged from the hospital, he enrolled himself in the program at the rescue mission, recommitted himself to his faith as a Christian, and never looked back. He's been sober for years now. He's an active member of the church that I served back in Milwaukee, and he also regularly shares his testimony with others. But that's what he said it took for him to finally turn his life around. It took hitting rock bottom 
It took the floor falling out from under him. It took realizing that he simply couldn't keep living the way that he had been. Instead, something needed to change. Well, in our text for this morning, Psalm 130, the psalmist is actually in a similar place. I'm gonna read the first few verses again. In verses one and two, the psalmist writes, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Out of the depths. That's the Bible's way of saying rock bottom. As biblical scholar James L. Mays puts it in his commentary on this passage, the song here discerns the human situation. Life is lived in danger of and also in the experiences of the depths. The term is a metaphor, an abbreviation of the expression the depths of the sea. It represents drowning in distress, being overwhelmed and sucked down by the bottomless waters of troubles. To be in the depths is to be where death prevails instead of life as prospect and power, where the authentic word about existence is, I am lost. That's what the depths are in scripture. It's like finding yourself underwater in the depths of the ocean and sucked down so deep that you're at the point of drowning. Maybe the place we actually uh, see that most clearly in scripture is in the book of Jonah. Most of you probably know the story. Uh, If you don't, the basic gist is that God sends a prophet named Jonah to go and preach to the uh, pagan Assyrian city of Nineveh. Uh, Rather than going to Nineveh though, Jonah boards a boat in the exact opposite direction. A lot of interesting things happen. Uh, Eventually it results in Jonah getting thrown overboard. God sends a big fish to swallow him and keep him alive. And in chapter two of that book, while in the belly of the fish, Jonah prays a prayer, and this is what he says. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth barred me in forever. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to be in the depths. That's biblical rock bottom. That's what it means to hit the lowest of the low in scripture. It means to be sunk down in the waters engulfed by the sea, so deep in fact that you're deeper than the roots of the mountains themselves, entombed in the earth forever. That's the imagery here in Psalm 130. Those are the depths the psalmist is saying he finds himself in here. That's where he's crying out to God from. He's crying out to him from rock bottom. And here's the interesting part. He's there, he says, because of his sin. That's why the psalmist says what he does in verse three. He writes, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? After all, that's how you find yourself in the depths, right? That's how Jonah got there. He disobeyed and rebelled against God's command. That's how my friend in Milwaukee got there too. And that's how the psalmist got there as well. You end up in the depths, hitting rock bottom a low point in your life because of your rebellion against God. In his commentary, Mays goes on, he writes, in this song, being in the depths is clearly connected with iniquities, 
those which belong to every human life, and specifically all those of which the community of faith is guilty. The predicament is the complex, multifaceted condition created by iniquity in individual and corporate life. It is not just guilt, it is the flood of wrong and its consequences that sweeps life along and from which there is no escape apart from a liberating, rescuing redemption. Now, that's not to say that all of the bad stuff in our lives uh, is a result of our sin. That's not the case either practically or biblically speaking. Uh, Scripture doesn't say that all of the the bad things that we encounter, all the difficulties that we face are always a result of our sin. Certainly, there are some depths that we reach, some dark places we find ourselves in, and some difficulties that we face in our lives that are simply the result of living in a broken, fallen world rather than because of our sin. Those kinds of things are tragedies that happen to us rather than consequences that happen because of us. And the difference between those two kinds of situations is important to recognize. But it's also important to recognize the times when the depths we experience are actually the result of our sin. We've done something, we know it, and now we're dealing with the fallout of that. And that's what the psalmist is talking about here. He sinned in some way or another. His sin has found him out and now he's stuck in the depths that have resulted from it. And as Mays writes, the only escape now is a liberating, rescuing redemption. Fortunately though, that redemption comes. Came for Jonah, right? His prayer in Jonah 2 actually doesn't end with him down in the depths. Instead it continues. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. To those who cling to worthless idols, or those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And indeed it does, because in the next verse, the author of the book of Jonah writes, rather dryly, I might add, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Have you ever thought about how funny that is, right? I'm not sure that's the kind of salvation that Jonah wanted, uh, but it's the kind he gets. And salvation is salvation regardless of how it happens, right? And the psalmist receives it here, too. Because in verse four, right after he's just said, Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, Lord, who could stand? He writes this, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. In other words, our relationship with God is possible because of him. We find ourselves in the depths, at least according to this psalm, because of ourselves, because of our sin and rebellion against God. But we find ourselves restored to relationship with God because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of his commitment to us. It's his mercy, his forgiveness, and his salvation that makes us right with him again. And that forgiveness... That redemption, that salvation that we receive from God also gives us something else. It gives us hope. 
That's actually the theme that Eugene Peterson says this psalm is all about in his book on these psalms, along obedience in the same direction. He says that this psalm, Psalm 130, is a psalm of hope. And we need to talk a little bit about that word, hope. Because the fact of the matter is that that word means something very different these days than it did biblically, than it did in scripture. You see, often when we talk about hope in our culture, when we say we hope for something, what we really mean is that we wish for that thing, okay? For instance, if I were to say, I really hope that we have mac and cheese for dinner tonight, uh, what I really mean is I wish that we would have mac and cheese, right? I'd like to have mac and cheese. I would be happy if we had mac and cheese. But I'd also probably be fine if we didn't. You know, I'd be okay. I'd get over it. I'm not saying that it's something that I need to have happen, right? In fact, it's not even something that I'm really expecting to happen. I'd just like it if, if it did. And that's the way that we tend to talk about hope in our culture. The way we use that word hoping for something means wishing for it. It'd be nice if it happened. You'd like it if it did, but you'd probably also be okay if it didn't. And yet that's not the way that the Bible talks about hope. You see, true hope, biblical hope, is different. And that's because, at least the way the Bible talks about it, hope isn't just something that we wish for. It's not just something that we'd like to have happen. It's not just something that would make us happy. Instead, to say that you hope for something in the biblical sense is to say that you firmly believe it will take place. You trust that it will happen. In fact, you know in a very real sense that it will. There's not a doubt in your mind. There's no question about it. There's no hedging your bets or wringing your hands. It's simply going to happen and you know, really know that it will, no matter what. That's biblical hope. It's a much surer, much stronger, much more certain kind of hope than what we often talk about when we use that word. And that's because it's a hope that's not based on a wish or a preference or a desire, but is instead rooted in and founded on God himself. And that's the kind of hope that the psalmist talks about in verses five through six here. He writes, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen Wait for the morning. And there it is. Who do we watch for? Who do we wait for? We watch and wait for the Lord. That's the basis of our hope as Christians. He's the basis of our hope as Christians. And that's why our hope as Christians is so sure, so firm, so certain. Because the one that it's based on, the Lord, is himself certain. And that's actually what this whole season of Advent that we're in right now in the church calendar, that's what this whole season is about. We said this last week, right? But the season of Advent, at a basic level, it's all about hope. It's about hoping, expecting, and anticipating the birth of a savior. Before Jesus came, that's what the Israelites did, right? They hoped for a savior. And not in the way that we use that word, but in the biblical sense. They didn't just wish for a savior, right? They didn't say, well, it would be nice if someday a savior would come. 
No, they knew, and I mean really knew, really trusted that one day he would. One day a Savior would come. That's the kind of hope that they had. It was a sure hope, a certain hope, a biblical hope. And they lived in light of that. They lived in response to it. They lived in the reality of that hope that they had. And we must too. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. That's part of what it means to walk this road of long obedience. It means being people who trust, people who hope, being people who know, really know, that someday the things that we hope for will in fact come true. But as Peterson says, that doesn't mean just sitting back and twiddling our thumbs. In his chapter on this psalm, he writes, hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. Instead, it means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion of fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he has said he will do. It is imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. In other words, hoping means being on the lookout. That's why the psalmist says what he does in verse six, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Because hope, true hope, biblical hope, Christian hope, means expecting to see the things you hope for. It's like a watchman waiting for the dawn. I actually worked as a night watchman for part of a summer uh, back right after I graduated high school. Uh, my, my job throughout high school uh, was working at a local retirement home uh, a couple towns over from where I lived in the maintenance department. And one summer, one of our night watchmen needed to have surgery, and so he had to take a few weeks off to recover afterwards. And as the lowest guy in the totem pole in the maintenance department, I got his shifts. Um, first, let me just say that retirement homes are kind of weird places at night, Okay. Nothing quite prepares you as an 18-year-old walking through the darkened cafeteria of the retirement home where you work and suddenly having a resident greet you. <laughs> it was midnight. Bob was there in the dark sitting at his table. Hey, Brandon, he said, and I just about jumped into the ceiling. Um, turns out he'd woken up, looked at his clock, saw 12 o'clock, and thought that it was lunchtime. I tried to explain to him that lunch would still be a few hours away, and he said, I'll just wait. It was experiences like that, and I had many of them during the couple weeks that I worked as a night watchman there that made me count down the hours until my shift was over. I couldn't wait for the dawn. But you know what? It always came. Eventually, the sun would come up, the morning light would filter in through the windows, and the retirement home would transform from that strange place in the middle of the night into the place that I knew and loved working at once again. And that's what our hope as Christians is like too. It's confidence, it's trust. It's watching and waiting not for things that we wish for or would like to have happen or would prefer or desire, but for the things that we know 
will happen. The things that we know the Lord will do. We watch and wait for him. We watch and wait for God to show up. We watch and wait for him to come through. We watch and wait for all the moments in our lives, both mundane and miraculous, when he breaks into our reality, our day-to-day lives, our everyday existence, and does the sorts of things that we hope for. That's what we watch for and wait for as Christians. That's what we hope for. You see, as Christians, we know, really know, that God will do what he's going to do. He'll do it in his way and in his time, but he will do it. After all, he's done it before, right? As the psalmist writes here at the end of this psalm, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And indeed, he has. He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. In his unfailing love, he has saved us. You see, that savior that the Israelites hoped for so long ago eventually came. He came and lived among us. He taught us. He was present with us. Then he suffered and died for us. But he didn't stay dead. Instead, he rose to new life. He gave us his spirit so that we could experience that new life too. And one day, he will come again to transform all things, to make it all new and to bring to completion that great work of redemption that he started so long ago. We call that the gospel. It's the good news of forgiveness and mercy that God has made possible for us. You see, just like Jonah, just like the psalmist here, just like my friend in Milwaukee, if it wasn't for him, we'd all still be stuck down in the depths of our sin, the depths of our shame, and the depths of our rebellion against God. But he came down to us lifted us up, and he's brought us out of that sin and shame into a relationship with God again. It's because of that gospel good news that we can live as people of hope. People of hope in our Savior, people of hope in our God, and people of hope in everything else that he's still yet to do as well. And we do. We live in that hope. We watch and we wait, and we know that no matter what, he will continue to be faithful. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that even the things we have not yet seen, we know to be true. We live out our hope in you in the promises that you have made, knowing, expecting, anticipating the day when our faith will be sight. Continue to give us that hope, Lord, that faith and the perseverance that we need to trust in you each and every day of our lives. We pray this all in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.